0: Okay, I'm glad you're here. <clears throat> so, so there's a lot to talk about on a bunch of different topics. Uh, I want to um, talk about this idea of, of traveling in the world. Um, and maybe we'll get a chance to touch on some other subjects, too. Um, <clears throat> we have a, a, a double Parsha this week. Um, we read two different portions from, from the Torah uh Matot and Masai and often they're read together and they talk about the the travels of the Jewish people through the desert. And it's um it's a very, very important uh very deep area in the Torah. Um let me review kind of like a, a general point and then we'll go a little bit deeper. It lists the 42 encampments of the Jews between the time they left Egypt and they went into Israel. Now, the the Rebbe say the following, that every single person has 42 stops in their own life as well. That each one of us has, like, these different encampments along the way. Now, if you try to make that real in your life, what does that mean? Well, that could be Going from one relationship to another relationship, that might be going from one school to another school, that might be going from the state of being single to being married or being a um, a uh, to not having children to being a parent. That might be experiencing the loss of a loved one. There are all sorts of travels. It could be recovering from an illness. There are all sorts of travels that one goes through in life. And so they actually pin the number. They say that the number of travels that we go through is the number of travels that the Jewish people went through from their way from Egypt. To Israel. So lest you think that those are two geographical points, Egypt and Israel, and this is just sort of a kind of like a random number. We have to understand even deeper. Egypt represents that place of confinement, that place of exile, and Israel, besides being a country, represents redemption, but it also represents the next world. It also represents just the fixing and the, and the achieving of the ultimate goal of creation. So in other words, what we have here now is a blueprint not just for our individual lives, but also and not just a historical account of what happened a few thousand years ago, but we also have a blueprint for the evolution of the entire world from creation all the way to its ultimate redemption so it 's working on many 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 different levels now if you look if you look at the um, one of the psukim. There's a lot of, there's a whole ocean of commentary. And we'll just be able to touch on a little bit of it. That's all I know. And even that, I, I hope I'll be able to say over. But um, a little bit of the commentary of a very interesting turn of phrase that Moshe Rabbeinu uh, recorded in the Torah from the hand of God. So so it's actually the second pasuk, the second verse uh, at the beginning of Parsha's uh, uh, Masai, um, Masai, and it's, uh, it's, I guess, chapter uh, 32, verse 2. So it says, Moshe wrote their settings forth to their journeys, according to the word of Hashem. And these were their journeys and their settings forth. So if you listened carefully, you saw that there were two words that were repeated Two times, but in opposite orders. So, so let's hear it in the Hebrew. Um, in the beginning of the Pasuk, it says, And then, toward the end of the same Pasuk, it says, So, what is this idea of these, this reversal in this phraseology? And the way it's translated in, in English, again, is you have the... Um, the settings forth and the journeys, and the journeys and the settings forth. So, in other words, if this, if, if these journeys themselves are, are the, are the nuts and bolts of the way God is guiding creation, and God is guiding our lives, and you've got this different phraseology of sort of like the, the dynamics, the mechanics of it, then if you have this like little variation in it, it really helps us to know what that's talking about, because it's obviously really, like, profound, right? So, so now listen to this. Maybe we can start with what the Torah is to begin with, because we say that this is recording, this is recording what the, this is recorded in the Torah. Okay, so now we have to take ten steps back, and we have to get, like, very cosmic for a moment, and then we're going to plunge back into this. You see, what is the Torah? So, the way I'm always trying to explain it, and the point that we need to keep in our mind, foremost in our mind all of the time, is that the Torah is not a book. Everyone thinks the Torah is a book. It's not a book. Everyone thinks, okay, so it's not a book. You mean a scroll. It's a scroll. It's not a scroll. So then, okay, well, now, now I don't follow you anymore. So what does that mean? So then what is the Torah exactly? The Torah is the will of Hashem. It's the, it's what Hashem desires for the, for the world. And our rabbis teach us that the Torah existed before the world was created. So, so okay, now this is now getting very, very intense. You see, to give you just a very sort of like simple here and now example, let's say um, let's say uh, you move into an apartment and you need to buy some furniture, right? So you need to buy a table for the dining room area. Okay. Now you say to yourself, "Well, who's going to sit at this table?" You say, "Well, I want to have some guests." I'll probably, this room may fit maybe eight people, okay? So I need a dining room table that's going to hold eight people, right? It's got to be a certain shape because it's going to fit into this room, right? So you have all sorts of notions about what that table is going, has to look like before you go to the store to buy it, right? Now, because otherwise it doesn't make any sense. So in other words, in other words, before you go to get the thing you already have a notion in your mind what it is that you need. Okay? You already have a desire before the physical object exists. Is that clear? The same thing went when Hashem created the world. Hashem had an intention, a desire for the world before He created the physical universe. This desire, this will, this goal for the world is the Torah. The way Reb Shlomo put it one time so beautifully, he says, you know what the Ten Commandments are? They're God's prayers for the world. And God's dreams for the world. And when you're keeping the Torah, you're praying God's prayers and you're dreaming God's dreams. Isn't that beautiful? Because it means that you're aligning your will with his will. You see, when we approach it like that, you see, many generations are, in terms of if you were to make a a chain of the Jewish people from, say, the beginning of receiving the Torah to the present day, it was pretty much like clockwork. One generation gave over to the next generation who raised them in Torah, who gave it over to the next generation who raised them in Torah. But the last few generations, like, you know, kind of like the train went off the tracks, basically. The giving over to the next generation got like real shaky. Right. So what happened was the normal way of being raised in Torah, historically speaking, is one would just grow up with all of the practices you know, when you were three years old, right? If you were a boy, then you'd get your first haircut, you'd get a pair of tzitzis, whatever it is. You'd start learning olive bays, you start learning sukin from the Torah, then you're 13, you get your pair of tefillin. Everything is, everything is like clockwork. Now, some people got the benefit of still getting that to this day, but many of us, maybe even most of the Jewish people, certainly most of the Jewish people, hasn't gotten that anymore. So the normal path of, of, of education and discovering this world and learning about God would be that you've got the practices and then over time you learn the inner dimensions of the practices. That would be the normal traditional way of learning. And they say at the age of 40, if you're married, then you can start learning Kabbalah and Zohar, things like this, right? But now everything is upside down. Now what happens is Instead of learning from the standpoint of, I'm practicing and I'm grounded in this and this is second nature to me and this is my life and now I'm learning deeper, now people learn from the outside in. They learn about unseen universes, right? They learn about like angels. They learn about like way out, far out things. And then when they understand the structure that they're dwelling in, then they go, oh, I see a vision of the universe. I see where I'm dwelling. And in order to stand here, I should have some sitsis on? I get it. I get it. And the, the knots on my sitsis are paralleling the number of commandments in the Torah, which is the structure of the universe around me. And I've got that around me, and I'm a microcosm of the universe. Get me some sitsis fast, you know? <laughs> but this, historically, is the opposite of the way Jews normally became educated. Okay? So, first we have to understand, the Torah is not a book. The Torah existed before the world existed. That the Torah is the will of Hashem. And that when you keep the Torah, you're aligning yourself with the will of Hashem. Okay? Alright, now, now, believe it or not, we're still on the... We're still talking about the travels in the desert. <laughs> Just in case you thought we changed the subject. We haven't changed the subject, but we're, we're approaching it from a much deeper standpoint, okay? So, so, what happened was, and this is like really quite amazing, and if you want to look at it inside, it's in Gomorrah, Yuma, on Dafa, Chaf, Ches, Beis 28B, Right? Um, where it talks about the fact that Abraham Avinu, Abraham, our forefather, that he was keeping the Torah before the Torah was actually given at Mount Sinai. That the Avos, our holy fathers and our holy mothers, were keeping the mitzvahs before they were revealed. And it says, and this is getting deep, who taught Abraham? It says, Abraham had two rebbees. You know, who his rebbe's were? His kidneys. Okay? In Yiddish, they're called your kishkas. Right? in English. Yeah. Now that has, right, thank you Jeff, because that has an, an evocative uh, translation that, that doesn't necessarily always come through in the English. When you say, sometimes you say to someone, how do you know? And the person says, I know it in my kishkas. Meaning to say, my sixth sense. My inner self understands it on a deeper level. So, so, or intuition is another very good word for this. So, Abraham Avinu, because he was so spiritually elevated, because he knew that there was a master of the universe, because he knew that there was a structure to the universe, he was able to actually derive what the mitzvahs were. It's quite, quite an amazing thing. Quite an amazing thing. But, but we're making a point here. The idea is that he was able to see on a very high spiritual level. He was also a prophet. He was able to see the spiritual before it became the concrete. He was able to de- to derive the concrete from the spiritual. All right, now let me give you just another model. And we're going to develop this idea further. And again, we're still talking about the travelings and we're still talking about the juxtapositions of these two phrases in the beginning of the Parsha. So, so, but we have to keep on going. So, so let's go further. One of the ways that a person has to understand the universe and has to understand what the Torah is and where it is that we're all dwelling is to take this example. It comes from high school science. Okay, You have ice, water, water vapor. It's all the same thing, right? Ice exists that's solid. Water, right? Same thing. Then water vapor, same thing. But it exists in three different states. Now, even though they seem like three different things, wow, this is just vapor. Or wow, hey, you threw water in my face. That's wet. Or ice, hey, that's hard. All of them have the same molecule. It's all H2O. Alright? But you see in this a very clear example of how God created the world. We have a notion, it's a Kabbalistic um, bit of terminology, it's called Tzimtzum, which means contraction or constriction. And what Hashem did, one of the stages of creation was God took his divine light and he contracted it, right? Think of water vapor, becoming water, becoming ice. God took his divine light and he contracted it until it became the physical universe. But the same molecule, if you will, in every stage of the contraction of creation is God. God exists equally in every single stage, even this physical universe. So you say, well, wait a second. No, it seems like this physical universe God is very far removed from this physical universe. Right? Wrong! God is equally here in this physical universe as He is in the highest heavens. There is no iota of difference of God's presence in this physical universe than in the highest heavens. So then what's the difference? The difference is is that God's presence is concealed. But His actual presence is 1,000% here and 1,000% the same as it is in the highest reaches of heaven. Now we can say it in another vocabulary. The same idea. That God created the world with the letters of the Torah. So He took His will and He contracted His will until it's surrounded and created a physical presence. And what about the Torah itself? His will itself? Well, it came from being just Hashem's alone to being contracted so that it can actually be read in a book, so that it becomes revealed in this world to us. Okay. So now... Now you have something, now we're ready for the next point. Now you have something very, very, very interesting. Which is, before, before what we had was that Abraham had to derive physical things from that which he couldn't see. He had to derive the idea of Shabbos. He had to derive the idea of Tefillin. He had to derive the idea of Tzitzit from that which he couldn't see. Now, in our lives, we have to look at the physical objects and we have to derive the spiritual dimensions of them from the physical. Do you hear how it's the opposite? First, he had to bring the abstract into the concrete. Now, we dwell amidst the concrete and we have to look into the concrete to derive the abstract. And do you see how that mirrors One's educational thing in, in life also. Okay. Okay. So now, now we can get back to the idea of these, uh, of these words. Okay? So it says, it says that when we traveled in the desert, and this is our life in this world, first it says, the motsehem, the maasehem. So, the motsehem, that's from God's point of view. Okay, these are the souls, these are the souls as they exist in heaven. And now I'm going to tell you the Ischvitzer, one, one idea from the Ishvitzer Rebbe, okay? He says that, that, that these, two different, um, these two different phrasings are looking at our life in this world, one from God's point of view, and one from a human being's point of view, Okay? So, from God's point of view, he sees all of the travels, and he understands that, that, that people can reach different levels in this world, okay? But that at their root, all of the souls come from God himself, and that, and that they're pure, and that they're good, okay? And then they come down into this world. And when we left Egypt, because this passage is talking about in the here and now, when we left Egypt, that the Jews, as they traveled in the desert, it was revealed to them that our root was from God. Okay? But he says, he says that from our point of view, what we have to do is we have to achieve in this world. We have to understand that our actions come first. And that we can achieve through our actions, through our travelings in this world, different levels, and that we're all heading toward God and that we're all rooted in God. Now listen to what Reb Shlomo Karlobach says. He says, and here I want you to know, Elema say, we travel, we come and we go, we go and we come. That's, by the way, the, uh, the best, simplest way of translating it. I wish I'd given you that translation earlier. <laughs> Because that's what, we're, that's, what we're, that's what we're contrasting. These two phrases. We go and we come, and we come and we go. Right? Okay. He says, very simple. I think we're ready for very simple at this point, right? He says, very simple. Moshe Rabbeinu writes down the traveling below, but it says, Yidin, did you think you were traveling? Did you know that you were traveling above? A Yid has to know, wherever I travel... The above is traveling with me. I bless you and me, that mamish the strongest thing we have to pray, this is the strongest thing we have to pray for day and night. It's talking about the above and the below. And we have to know that when we travel below, that God above is traveling with us. That we're not traveling alone. That God and the encampment of angels are traveling with us wherever we go. And that we're never alone. It's a huge, a huge, huge, huge idea. Like the mission, God, with the and the, yes, the desert? Yeah, you know, when we traveled through the desert, there was a there was a there was a pillar of cloud that was in front of us during the day and a pillar of fire at night. And you know, if you didn't know I mean, if you thought that you weren't being led, all you had to do was look at this pillar of cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night. It was such a great reminder. It's, this is one of the hardest things in life. This is one of the hardest, 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 hardest things in life. Because when you set a goal, and the goal is very slow in, 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 in getting to, or you set a goal... And it just gets wiped off the map. It's just like, sort of like, no, this isn't slow to happen. This just isn't happening. I mean, it's just, your first thought is, is God with me? Is God not with me? You know? So the hardest thing, the hardest thing in life, and this is what Reb Shlomo is saying here, the hardest thing to know and to keep in mind is that wherever I'm traveling, God is traveling with me. And um, that's this is a this is a life saving thing, you know. You know, we talked about it since you mentioned the uh, since you mentioned the Mishkan. One of the things that it's one of the most repetitive, one of the most repetitive passages in the entire Torah, is when it talks about the clouds over the Mishkan, and says the the clouds stayed, then the clouds went up. And when it went up, they would go, and when it stayed, they would stay, and when it would, they would stay for a little while, when it stayed over the Mishkan for a little while, and it just, it's every variation of this idea. But the rabbis explain something very, very beautiful, which is that there were places where we wanted to encamp, and we were like, ah, this is a really good place. And then the cloud went up, and it was a praise to the Jewish people that even though we wanted to stay there, When the cloud went up, we left. And then there were places where we were like, i got to get out of this place. This place is a drag. But the cloud didn't go up. And we still stayed in that place. Even though we weren't happy there. Because the cloud hadn't told us to leave. Hashem hadn't instructed us to leave yet. And this is our life. There are places in our life, periods in our life, where we're like, i got to get out of this phase in my life. But the cloud hasn't lifted yet. But that doesn't mean that God isn't there and it doesn't mean that God isn't leading us. God is there, but He's like, listen, there's a lesson that you have to learn and you're not there yet. We're not there yet. And we keep on thinking, I'm there! I'm there! I'm so there! Let me go already! And God's like, yeah, just just wait, You're not, you're not there yet. You know? And then there are other times where it's sort of like we're in a job or we're in a relationship and we're like, I'm so happy, this is so fantastic. And then, whoa, what happened? Right? The cloud lifted. And it's sort of like, well, you know what it is? Whatever that had to be, that's what it was. On to the next. On to the next. And you know something? The Jewish people, listen very carefully, the Jewish people in the desert, when they stayed, when they didn't want to stay, and when they, When they left, when they wanted to stay, they gave us strength, you and me right now in our lives, strength till Mashiach is coming, to be able to endure hard times and to be able to surrender during the other times as well. That was implanted in us in terms of our our neshamas, our souls. It was planted in us in the desert. They gave us the strength. It's an awesome, it's an awesome thing to realize. It's an awesome thing to realize. You wanna leave? Go ahead. now different time it's a closeness that we have come yeah. apart from but now we have to come together so so basically you know okay so let me tell you guys something very very deep so this is from addressing what you're saying this is from in other words what's our relationship from, with the Jews in the desert so so it's it's closer than close it's closer than close it's basically us It's basically us. But let me phrase it in another way. The Ishmitzer gives a very, very beautiful um, way of visualizing this. You see, the very, very last mitzvah in the Torah that came from Moshe Rabbeinu is... um, You see, once every seven years, there was this mitzvah of Hakel. And what would happen is, the king of Israel would read the book of um, Deuteronomy in English, Sefer Devarim. He would read Sefer Devarim, and everyone would crowd around and he would he would read this okay and it says that it says that everyone had to come and it says that the mothers should bring their babies in their arms to hear okay so so believe it or not that's the last mitzvah that we got from Moshe Rabenu that mothers should bring their babies in their arms to hear the Torah being read <clears throat> OK, and then just so you know, for your general education, the very, very, very last mitzvah in the Torah is to write a safer Torah. But this is the last one that is coming, so to speak, from 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 Moshe, from Moshe's mouth, his, his verbal instruction to us. OK, so. So can you imagine um, your parent says to you, can you pass me that? Um, can you bring me a cup of water? so so, so, you can bring your parent a cup of water for sure that's that's no problem it's hot. He wants a cool drink that's all good, right? now, can you imagine Hashem says, "Can you bring me a cup of water a thousand years from now?" <laughs> How do you do that? How do you do that so So, the idea is that You, you, your hands, your arms, your fingers can reach and grasp to a realm of existence physically that your parent can't reach. And your children's children and your children's children's children are one long extension of your forefather and your foremother's arm in this world. Okay? So, it's quite exciting actually to think like I am an extension of their arm in this world from heaven. So, what is our relationship to the Jews in the desert? It's, it's, it's where we are the, we are the fingers of their hand. So when we're talking about the Jews in the desert, we're talking about us. When they opened up gates, they opened up gates for us as well. So let's talk about another episode in the Torah, because we just had the whole description of Slavchad's daughters. So Slavchad's daughters, it's a whole amazing topic in and of itself. Righteous, holy women in the Torah, but who was Slavchad? Who was their father? Yeah, yeah. So, so we're gonna we're gonna get into like who he was for a moment because because it's quite wild. So, so according to Rabbi Akiva, this is we're gonna learn it out like Rabbi Akiva from the Gemara, okay? Because this is such a radical understanding of who the wood gatherer was. He was the wood gatherer in the Torah who was stoned and executed for breaking Shabbos. Okay? So, you think, well, you know, like he doesn't sound like the highest person in the Torah, right? I mean, here you have Moshe Rabbeinu is there, the clouds of glory are over you, you've got the Mishkan, well, yeah, you've got the Mishkan there, you've got all sorts of miracles going on, Man is falling from heaven, and you know it's Shabbos, you know, what, how do you know it's Shabbos? Because that's the one day man doesn't fall, right? The man are from heaven. So Shabbos is like, not just like, oh, you know, you could get kind of confused. No. Shabbos was this concrete idea in the desert, okay? So, so who is this person who is publicly desecrating the Shabbos by gathering wood, which is carrying, without an eruv? There's, you know, you didn't have permission to do that. So that's, that's. You know, it's it's hard to say these words, but that's punishable by death. And he received the death penalty. Okay? So, who was this person? Okay, so now listen to this. The first thing that we have to understand is he was one of the highest, highest students of Moshe Rabbeinu. Alright? So, oh, well now I'm already thinking about him differently. Like, I thought maybe he was some... Oh, so oh, I get it now. I know what the story is. He was a high student and then he went off the path, right? That's the story, right? No, 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 no. That's not the story. It's better than that. It's much better than that. He's one of the highest students of Moshe Rabbeinu. Now, you have to know when this whole chapter happens in the unfolding of the Torah. The Jews had just found out that they're going to be wandering in the desert for 40 years. Okay, this this happens right after the chet of the miraglim, the sin of the spies. Okay, So, so you know, this wood gather, gatherer, Slavchad, he gets a little bit worried. You've got to put yourself in the in the shoes of the Jewish people in the desert at that moment. You were just at Mount Sinai for one year. You just got the Torah. You've been told that the Torah is going to be practiced in the land of Israel. In fact, lots of the Torah involves agriculture and when to keep your field, your, your, your field follow and building, you know, all the mitzvahs at the base of Migdash and bringing the fruits of the land. And, you know, it's very Israel focused, you know. All of a sudden you find out, wait a second, it's not going to be a several day journey into Israel We're taking a 40-year detour? Well, you've got a lot of questions going through your mind right now. One of the questions is, am I ever going to get there? 40 years, well, that sounds like a long time. Then you're also asking yourself, wait a second, what is this Torah to begin with? What's my obligation to it, and what's its connection to me? Because I thought I'm basically getting the Torah and I'm doing it in the land of Israel. So you have a lot of questions about the Torah. Well, Slavchad was worried about the Torah. Slavchad was worried that people would say, the Torah no longer applies to me. So what did Slavchad do? I mean, I've got the chills just thinking about it. Slavchad says, I've got to show them that even in a state of exile, even as we're wandering in the desert, Even in a point in my life where it seems like everything is random and purposeless and I don't know if Hashem is with me anymore? I've got to show them that the Torah is still in their lives and it's still real and that God is still with us? How can I show them that the Torah is still operative? I'm going to gather sticks on Shabbos and I'm going to get the death penalty. I'm going to die for Shabbos. I'm going to give up my life for Shabbos. So that Jews for all time will know that the Torah applies to them even in the exile until Mashiach is coming. And Reb Shlomo says something absolutely unbelievable. Listen to this. I've heard him say, I heard Reb Shlomo say on several occasions that we have the strength to stay stay Jews in exile because of Yosef Atzadik. Because when Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt, all of the Jews were in Israel, and he was the only Jew outside of Israel, and Yosef stayed holy outside of Israel. Therefore, we're getting our strength to this day to remain Jews in exile from Yosef. Okay, you can't argue with that. That's like concrete. That's, 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 that's perfect. But can you imagine this statement? Reb Shlomo says that until Mashiach is coming, we're getting the strength to be Jews in exile from Slavchad. Wow. Because what about us? What did we say? Israel stands for redemption. Israel stands for Mashiach. What about us? We say it's been thousands of years. We're walking around in exile. Hashem, you promised us Mashiach. Where's Mashiach? Mashiach's not here. If Mashiach's not here and you promise it to us and we're just wandering around in exile for thousands of years, what's the Torah to me? And what's me to the Torah? What's my obligation to it? What's its existence to me? So Slavchad stood up and he said, I'm giving up my entire life for Shabbos so that everyone should know until Mashiach comes that it's real and it's here and it's now and it's for me and I'm for it. Now listen to this. Now Reb Shlomo brings the Zohar. You ready for the Zohar? The Zohar says... Remember, he's known as the wood-gatherer. Slavchad, in in that chapter, is not called by name. He's not called by name. He's called the wood-gatherer. Are you ready for this? The Zohar says that when Abraham Avinu was getting ready to sacrifice Yitzchak, right? Isaac, that's the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. Look in the Torah, it says that he chopped wood. He chopped wood... Right? To make the fire. Because it was going to be like a corbinola. It was was going to be like a... Right? That was the nature of of the offering that was going to take place. So the Zohar says that when Abraham Avinu chopped the wood, that what he was doing was through Abraham Avinu's own Mesiris Nefesh. That means giving up completely of himself in order to do the will of God. He was giving over part of his Messiris Nefesh for the wood gatherer who would come generations, generations later. That Slavchad would have that strength to give up his own life for God and for the Torah and for the Jewish people. Where did Slavchad get that strength from? From Abraham Avinu when he was chopping wood to sacrifice his only son. Wow. Yeah, it's beautiful. But it also a The Lafak became Corbin, much like Yitzchak. Yeah, it says, by Yitzchak, it says the ashes of Yitzchak. That means, even though Yitzchak lived, and by the way, Hashem never asked Hashem to kill Yitzchak, and that gets explained later, but he, Hashem presented the request in a deliberately ambiguous way. He understood that Abraham would not understand him, but after the fact, if you look at the language, he actually didn't say kill Yitzchak. But nonetheless, we talk about the ashes of Yitzchak. Because, Hash- because Abraham Avinu was so prepared to do the will of Hashem that on some level in heaven, it's as if it was done. And that Yitzchak was offered in that way. And, 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 and when it talks about the utmost dedication and purity of intention of Abraham... It's like the ashes exist. And the ashes are in front of Hashem at all times. So we have to understand in our own lives. We have to understand in our own lives something very, 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 very important. When we do something beautiful, it's for generations. You think that the Jews in Egypt stayed in a place that they didn't want to stay? And they left a place where they wanted to stay, and we're still getting strength from them. You think when you don't do something beautiful, that future generations aren't getting strength from you? And I'm not talking about maybe you have kids, maybe you don't have kids, it's irrelevant. We're all one family, we're all brothers and sisters. All of the next generations are all our children. You know, in the Gomorrah, it talks about how to cut an onion properly. You're not supposed to begin by cutting off the roots of the onion. And it even says, although they say in our generation, that the, the, th- the things that talk about health-related things in the Gomorrah are, are not necessarily true for our generation, even though they were true then. So there's an opinion about that. But nonetheless, there's this teaching that it has a, a consequence on a person's health. So you don't cut the roots off an, on, an onion. That's not your first cut when you start cutting an onion. OK, so from that, I thought, well, wait a second. If I'm so connected to an onion, then an onion, how I cut an onion is going to affect me. How connected am I am to another human being and how connected am I am to another Jew? Right. So we're thoroughly connected. So we have to understand generations from now our actions are giving them over strength as well. That those future generations are the extension of our arms and our hands. Right? Mm-hmm. Is uh, I mean mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what the Zohar is saying. That, that Slavchad got his strength mm-hmm. to give up his life, to give up everything that was important to him from Abraham. And that Abraham did that in the most exact way. When he chopped wood, he was chopping. He was chopping wood, so to speak. The wood that Slavchad gathered to give up his life, Abraham was chopping that wood for for Slavchad to gather, so to speak. So to speak. I'm not sure that the Zohar says exactly that point. Whether it gets that detail, but it's talking about that that willingness to give up everything for God. So, so I want to. I want to end with this one point. Um, I want to end with this one point that uh, I heard from Rabbi Weinberg, from Rabbi Simcha Weinberg. When you have a moment of inspiration in your life, spiritual inspiration, stop and pray for your future generations or the future generations of the Jewish people. That they should be able to draw strength from this moment. That they should be able to draw inspiration from this moment. Make, Make that connection concrete and real. You know, because then it's like a laser. Then it has even more power. Do you understand? Either way, they'll become inheritors of that legacy. But if you, like, zero it in, oh that was so hard for me, but I did it. Or that was so beautiful. Please let them discover this beauty. Or that was so hard for me, that which I was able to muster strength from. Let them experience the same strength if they're ever challenged and they should be able to be successful to overcome those challenges. Right? So I want to tell you a story that happened to me. I actually wrote it up for a for bringing magazine. You can if you're interested, it's it's actually I I made a site. It's called Torah on iTunes dot com. You can look. It's on that site. Um, but anyway, it's called In My Father's Footsteps. Actually, yeah, yeah. It was also uh, it's also on H dot com if you're interested. But anyway, the story goes like this. When my father. When my father uh, finished uh, his service uh, in the U S Army, um, in World War Two, he um, he. He went out to Los Angeles, to UCLA, and he enrolled there, and um, it was summertime, and he wanted to, he, he needed to find a place to live, so he, need, so he wanted to find a place to live that was very close to the campus. So he found the place that was closest to the campus, mm-hmm. and he went in there, and, um, you know, he gave him a check, and it was a fraternity, and he went upstairs, and he starts unpacking his bag. Well... You know, I guess because it was summertime and all the rest, maybe all the regular crew wasn't necessarily there. And, um, someone comes up afterwards and starts asking my father some questions while he's unpacking his bags, moving into his room. And, um, you know, after these questions, he starts saying to my father, you know, um, you know, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe this isn't the best place for you. And my father's like, well, no, you know, it's so convenient. It's so close to the campus. It seems like a good place. And the person says, well, you know, maybe you want to be around people who are more like yourself. And my father says, well, you know something? My father was very naive. He didn't understand what this person was driving at at all. He says, no, you know, I just got out of the U.S. Army. And there's lots of different kinds of people there. And I'm very comfortable with different types of people. And the person realized that my father wasn't understanding what he's saying. And the fact was, was that this was a fraternity that did not accept Jews. And that my father, because of whatever the immediate circumstances, who was at the desk or whatever it was, my father, a Jew, got into this place that doesn't accept Jews, and now they had to get the Jew out of the building. So, so the person finally said, well, well, Whatever he said, whatever his final words were. And he took my father's check and he left it on the counter and he walked out of the room. In other words, he returned his deposit. In other words, he said, get out, you know. I don't think he said those words, but it was very clear. So my father understood. Oh, okay. well, I guess I got to get out of here, right? So he goes and he uh, he packs his bag up. And this was always the detail that stayed with me the most of this uh, story. He says that that he had to walk down a flight of stairs and he had to walk through the rec room area there. And that there were people playing ping pong and stuff like that. You know, you know. And he said as he walked down the stairs and walked through, the whole room went silent. Right? Because everyone obviously knew what had just happened. So my father's walking across in front of all these people, this silent room, you know, everyone knew what was happening, and he gets out of the house. So, so this is really where the story starts, by the way. What's my father's next move, right? He's just been humiliated. What's his next move? Well, his next move could be the last place I'm going is to a Jewish house. Because if this is what it means to be Jewish, I don't want any part of this. That would be that would be a lot of people's next move, and who can judge them, right? Well, my father went to the Jewish frat. That that was his next move. He went to the Jewish frat. Okay. So, so now cut to forty years later, and. Uh, and, you know, my father grew up in Newark, so it's kind of strange that he was in Los Angeles to begin with. That's Newark's in New Jersey, so it's the other side of the coast. And uh, I grew up in New York City, but I find myself in Los Angeles also, okay? It's uh, it's, Yom, it's Yom Kippur, and uh, I'm in the Brentwood area, and I'm thinking, okay, well, I want to go and find a place to daven for Yom Kippur. And I'm thinking, okay, well, there's a Chabad that's close. Okay, I'll go to the the Chabad in Westwood. So I go and I daven in the Chabad in Westwood. And um, at the end of the service, Rabbi Reitchik should be blessed. Those of you who know him, the senior Rabbi Reitchik is a very, very strong, very strong man. And at the end of the davening, he stood up and with his full, full full-on, you know, Way of expressing himself, he went through a list of things, and one of the things that he said was, "Every Jewish male, thirteen years and older, has to put on tefillin every day, right? Except Shabbos, right?" And I, I, and he said, "And every woman has to light candles, right?" And uh, and I left, and I had to fill in. I had to fill in. I had gotten them a long time ago, but. Whatever. And I thought to myself, he's right. He's right. I gotta, I've, I've got to put it on every day. That's what it is. So after that, I started putting it on every single day. And then shortly thereafter, I started keeping Shabbos. And on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And on, and on right? So, so that place where I went in Westwood, that Chabad... Was 741 Gailey Avenue. The Jewish frat that my father went to after we was kicked out was 741 Gailey Avenue. It was the same place. We didn't grow up in Los Angeles. We're not from Los Angeles. He's from Newark. I'm from New York. World War II is in the middle of this. Decades are in the middle of this. The same spot. So what does it mean that the parents are an extension for the children? Do you need a better example in modern day time? How exact it is. How precise it is. God's guidance of the world. And you're a part of it. And you're opening up gates for the next generation. And the previous generations opened up gates for you. And I learned that it says in the Zohar that any gate that's ever been opened stays open. The gates that the Baal Shem Tov opened stayed open. They're still open. The gates that Moshe Rabbeinu, that Yeshua, that Abraham, that Sarah, that Rizcha, that Esther. All of these gates remain open in heaven. And the gates that all of us here right now are opening right now remain open forever. Have a good week.